The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. The word of God for the people of God. Well, as Christians, we are a people of the scriptures. And so it's a joy to gather with you and hear the word of God read and think about it together. We begin Today, a new series in the life of Joseph. And so before we begin, can we just look at that cool art? Isn't that awesome? Ben and his team at Fruitful Design did a great job with this series artwork. Um, they've done good work for us for years. And I kind of just want to just look at that all morning and then close in prayer. <laughs> it just captures a lot of the imagery. There's some Egyptian themes there and just all kinds of themes from the story. So really great artwork. And um, if I were to ask you, what is the book of Genesis about? I wonder what you would say. Perhaps some of you would say it's about the creation of the world. Perhaps you would say it's about the fall. 
Perhaps you would say it's about sort of the beginnings of humanity. But actually, do you know what takes up the most space in the book of Genesis? The story of Joseph does. Joseph is the most significant character in Genesis, and the story of Joseph takes up the most space in Genesis. And so this is kind of the high point of the book. And so as we get into it, I want to remind us of the story of God. Uh, Then I want to look at the story of Joseph. And then I want to close by making a connection to your story. So story of God, story of Joseph, your story. That's kind of where we're headed this morning. So let's begin by thinking together about the story of God, just finding our place in the narrative. Um, If you want to ask the question, what is the Bible about? Here's one way we can answer that question. The Bible is the story of God's promise to save the human race and restore the world. It's the story of God's promise to save the human race and restore the world. And one way of tracing that promise through the Bible is to think of it as a camera shot that slowly zooms in and then zooms back out. So the the Bible begins with a focus on the whole creation, the heavens and the earth. And then it zooms a little bit in and we meet Adam and Eve. And then it zooms in a little further and we come to Noah. Noah has three sons, but the focus of the scripture zooms in on his son Shem and the Semitic peoples who will descend from him. Within that people group, it zooms in further to this person named Abraham. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and we learn the promise is going to follow Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and we learn that the promise is going to follow Jacob and not Esau. And it's going to continue to zoom into the tribe of Judah, to the house of David, to the descendants of Zerubbabel, and ultimately the focus zooms in on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands at the end of that long history. And then the focus zooms back out after we meet Jesus to show us again how God is going to bring blessing and flourishing to the whole earth, to every tribe and tongue and nation through what God has done in Jesus. So one way to understand the story of the Bible is it zooms in to Jesus and then zooms back out. And so where we are in this part of the story, in the story of uh, Joseph and Genesis, the question is, what's going to happen to to Jacob's family? That's the question at the heart of the narrative here, because you have to remember If Jacob's family doesn't make it to the end of Genesis, we have no Jesus. We have no good news. We have no God saving the world and redeeming his people and restoring all that's broken and fallen. So it should matter deeply to you as a reader what happens to Jacob's family. Because the narrative has shown us that's the family through whom God is going to work out his purpose to save the whole world. Now, to get the most out of the story... You also kind of have to know how to read a story, right? And so since sometimes it's been a few years since we were in school and sort of learned and thought about how to read a story well, let me remind you three basic principles of how to read a story, all right? First, you got to get to know the characters. The characters are what drive any story forward, right? So we need to pay attention to how are these characters introduced? What do we learn about them? How does the author want us to see them? What features does he draw out about each character? Remember, in the Bible, every character is a flawed character. Every character is an actual person, a lot like you. The only hero in the story is God. All the other characters are flawed characters. And so we need to pay attention to how these characters develop throughout the story. Watching the development of the characters is key to understanding what God might be saying to us through the story. So first, 
Get to know the characters. Second, pay attention to the plot. A story, as you know, has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's going somewhere, right? And so we have to pay attention to the plot line. There's usually rising action. There's a climactic point of tension. There's falling action. So we have to pay attention to the plot. I've already clued you into the fact that the plot in this part of Genesis has to do with, is Joseph's family and Jacob's family going to make it to the end of the book? That's what we're concerned with. That's what moves the plot forward. God has made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And if we don't get Jacob to the end of Genesis, this whole thing falls apart. So that's the plot that animates the story. The third thing you need to remember about how to read the story is that you always have to let the story develop. You have to let the story develop. One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. Maybe you like that movie too. Um, we, won't t- we won't do a show of hands, but it's beloved to me and to my family. And um, as you might recall, that story is set up as a grandfather reading the story to his grandson. And so just when you get into the action of the movie, it pulls away back to the grandson's bedroom because the grandson is getting impatient and he's asking the grandfather, how come that's happening? Or wait, wait, what's going on in the story? And you remember in these scenes, the grandfather played by Peter Falk patiently says, are you gonna let me keep reading, right? The point is, you gotta let the story develop. You can't rush it along. It's going where it's going. It's going to get there, and you have to enjoy each moment along the way because a story develops over time. Good stories reward patient readers. So we have to be patient readers of this story and of the narratives we find in the Bible. So now that we've understood the big picture of God's story, Let's meet the characters in the story of Joseph. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Genesis 37. That's where we'll be. Genesis 37, verse 1. Let's meet the key characters in the story. The text says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. The first character we meet in the story is Jacob. This is Joseph's father, And notice the text tells us that he lives in the land of his father's sojourning. So that tells you we're coming into a story that's already in flight. Jacob has a father, and he has a land that he's living in that was a place where his father sojourned. This clues us in, reminds us that earlier in the story, God has made a promise to Abraham to give him a land and to give him many descendants. And so we're coming into the middle of that story. Now, verse 2 is one of those verses you would just skip over. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's get on with the story. But before we do that, I want to point out, this is one, a very important structural marker in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is organized around 10 instances of this phrase, these are the generations of blank. So every time you read that, we're coming to a new section of the story. This has happened nine times, and it's going to happen again here. And so this reminds you that we're coming to a new section of the book. We're sort of, there's a story that we're stepping into, but we're stepping in right at the beginning of a new scene. These are the generations of Jacob. And notice, by the way, the writer is telling you it's Jacob, not Joseph, who's most important here. Joseph is going to become the main character for part of this story But the story itself is really about Jacob and Jacob's descendants. That's what the key is to the story. This is about God's promise 
to the family of Jacob, which includes Joseph and also his brothers. In fact, at the end of the book, Joseph is going to recede back into the background again, and we're going to once again see the, all the descendants of Jacob come into the foreground. So this is the first character we meet, Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. Continue reading in verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So the second character we meet in the story is Joseph. And what we learn about Joseph is that he is 17 years old. No disrespect to all of you who are around the age of 17. But for the rest of you, how many great decisions did you make when you were 17? Like you can look back and you're like, yeah, probably not my, the high point of my wisdom in life, right? Uh, I did some research this week in the Harvard Medical Journal. This will not surprise you because most of this is common knowledge, but the neural network in your brain is not fully formed until you're in your mid-20s. It forms more slowly for men than for women. And what that means is the last connections to be made, the very last thing that comes together in your brain chemistry are the links between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. Those links, those connections are critical for self-regulation and executive function. Have you ever been driving down like the West Dodge Expressway, just minding your own business, trying to go somewhere, and then some knucklehead on a sport bike goes by you doing like 80, weaving in and out of traffic? Has that ever happened to you? How many times is that rider a woman? <laughs> Never, right? Zero times. How many times is that rider over the age of 30? Also zero times. Insurance companies understand that when you are 17, you are not the most rational decision maker. That's why they make you pay a lot of money to be insured. Because they know, yeah, you know what? Human beings at this age are not as wise and mature and self-regulated as they will become. And so the first thing the narrator tells you about Joseph is that he's 17 years old. He's, he's somewhat foolish. He's a little bit immature. Now, those of you who are at that age don't allow this to be a reason to be a knucklehead, right? Like you still are responsible for your choices and your decisions and you still need to honor God with your life. But the point of the story is he's at a season of life where there's still some immaturity, now, thankfully, who Joseph is at 17 is not who he'll be when he's 30 and 50 and 70, right? God's grace works on us over time. But the, first, the second character we meet here is Joseph, and we learn that he is a 17-year-old. The uh, text goes on to tell us he was a boy with the son of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we've met Jacob. We've met Joseph. The third set of characters we meet in the story are the brothers. What we know about these guys is they can't even speak to their brother Joseph. That's how much they hate him. So if your family is a little complicated, you are in good company, friends. This family has some complications, right? Um, we've only gone four verses into the story, and here's what we've already learned about the family dynamic. First of all, 
we've learned that Jacob has multiple children by multiple wives, which is not God's design for marriage. And so that in itself introduces a ton of complexity into the family system. Second, we've learned that Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of his kids. Probably not great for the family dynamic, right? I brought along this morning one of my favorite children's books. It's called, You're All My Favorites. I don't know if you have this book in your house, if you have kids, but we, we used to read this with our, with our kids when they were little. And um, I'm going to read it to you. Here's how the story begins. Once upon a time, there was a mother bear, a father bear, and three baby bears. Doesn't that just set up for a nice story? A first baby bear, a second baby bear, and a third baby bear. I won't read the whole book, but basically, (laughs) as you can imagine, what happens in the story is these baby bears begin to wonder, am I as loved as my other siblings? And so they wonder about their place in the family, and they, they ask the parents, which of us is your favorite? And the story ends with the father bear saying, you're all my favorites, hence the title of the book, right? What's fascinating to me about this book is that it's written for young children. It's tapping into one of the core tensions, one of the core threats, one of the core fears and insecurities in the heart of every child. Am I as important? Am I as loved? Am I as valued? as my siblings. This is deep in every one of us, isn't it? Because we read this book with our kids, and because we also read the story of Joseph in in story Bibles with our kids, my kids clued into the idea of parental favoritism, and they started to accuse me of that. So like if one of them would get a privilege that the others didn't get, one of the others would usually say in a snarky way, we always knew he was your favorite. And um, so I decided two can play at that game. So I just started giving that right back to them. And so when they would say, oh, we always knew he was your favorite, I just started replying like this. Yeah, you know what? You're right, he is. But if you do the dishes, you can move up in the rankings. (laughs) You don't want to be last. You don't want to come in force. Now, I realize that kind of humor only works in a family system that's healthy and safe, right? And some of you, in fact, grew up in families where that wasn't the case. Some of you grew up in families where there really was parental favoritism, and that shaped you, and it shaped the family. And that's what Jacob's family is like. It's no secret. The whole family knows it. Everybody knows it. There's even an artifact, a physical symbol of this favoritism, the Technicolor dream coat. I mean, this is daddy's gift to his favorite. And that garment, in fact, is going to play a key role in the story. Because of this favoritism, Joseph's brothers could not speak shalom to him. They could not speak peace to him. There's animosity. There's ill will coursing through this family. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And he goes on to tell this dream about how 
their sheaves bowed down to his, and then another one that has a similar theme. It actually turns out that these dreams are a foreshadowing of what actually will happen later in the story. But at this point, there's no indication that these dreams are prophetic or that they're from God in some way. All we know is a 17-year-old kid whose daddy's favorite gathers the whole family around and tells them that he had a dream where everybody bows down to him. In the words of Jewish scholar Mayor Sternberg, Joseph could hardly make a worse impression on his first appearance. Spoiled brat, tailbearer, braggart. There's your main character, friends. There's the guy who takes up more space than any other figure in the book of Genesis. So we've met the three main characters in the story, Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers. But really we should point out, maybe it's not quite right to call them the main characters. Because there's, of course, another character who's even more important, who's not explicitly introduced in the text. And that character is God. God is the one whose hand of providence is working behind and underneath and throughout all the events that are taking place in the story. This story is in the Bible not to teach us something about Jacob or something about Joseph, but to teach us something about God. So what is God revealing about himself in this text in the beginning of Genesis 37? Friends, here's what God is showing us about what he is like. Here's what he's revealing about his character. Here's what he wants you to realize about him. This simple truth, God's grace is bigger than your story. God's grace is bigger than your story. That's what God is showing to us here. He's going to come into a story full of dysfunction, full of anger, full of favoritism. He's going to enter into that family system He's going to make his grace known, and he's going to work out his purposes through those people. God's grace is bigger than your story. Now, I don't have to tell you probably there's a, there's a growing body of research in many different disciplines that reveals the extent to which human beings are story-formed creatures. The more we learn about neurology and biochemistry and psychology, in all these disciplines, what we see is the things that happen to you early in life, the things that are true in your family system, the experiences you have that are both good and bad, these things shape you. They form you in deep ways. They, they make you who you are in many ways. You are a story-formed person. But the good news of Scripture is God's grace is bigger than your story. You may be shaped by your story. Your story may make you part of who you are, but you are not defined by your story. God's grace meets you in your story and is bigger than your story. <laughs> Jacob and Joseph and these brothers have a story, and yet God is going to enter in and change their story. And listen, if God's grace is bigger than this story then God's grace is bigger than your story as well. And that's really what I want you to walk out of here believing this morning. So I want you to walk out of here believing that no matter who you are, no matter what has shaped your life, God's grace is bigger than your story. 
So I don't just want to say that. I want to show you how that changes you, show you how that matters. And so let's explore three points of application. The first is this. Because God's grace is bigger than your story, you're free to be honest about your story. Because God's grace is bigger than your story, you're free to be honest about your story. I wonder if you just appreciate the honesty of Scripture. Like we're 11 verses into the story, you already know a lot of junk about Jacob's family that's not super flattering, right? Why is the Scripture so straightforward in telling us about the favoritism that's present, about the animosity and ill will that's present? Why does Scripture seem to not blush at all about telling us all this data about this story? Well, because they're real. These things are true. And the Bible is a book that speaks about reality. It doesn't feel a need to hide the truth, cover over the truth, make the truth prettier than it is. It just tells us what's true. The Bible's reporting these things about Joseph's family and about Jacob's family because they're actually what was, what was the case. And I know that some of us have grown up in family systems where it's not okay to tell the truth, right? I was talking to a friend just last week who grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family system. And she said it was clear to us kids that we were responsible to make things look good. We all knew things weren't good, but we needed to make them appear good. And so there's this sense in her, she said, that if she's honest about the dysfunction, she's dishonoring her family somehow. That's there because that's just what she was told and by God's grace, she's starting to realize that, that grace frees her to be honest. That telling the truth, that's talking about what's real, is not dishonoring. One of the things we must do in order to be mature disciples of Jesus Christ is to acknowledge the truth. To deal with reality. To really talk about what's really true in our families and in our stories and in our lives. And the narrator of Genesis is telling you there were things that were true about Jacob's family that everybody knew, but that nobody talked about. And if that's the case in your family as well, the grace of God frees you to be honest about it. I mean, thousands of years later, you're reading about the dysfunction of this family because the grace of God changed it. Like if Jacob were here, if Joseph were here, they don't mind you knowing these things about their story because of what God did through that story. What if you were so confident in God's grace in your life that you were willing to be completely honest? That you're willing to open up the whole story and just let people know, hey, here's who I really am, what I've really gone through, what things are really like what it was like in my family growing up or the hard things I've been through now or where things are complicated even now. I think the reason that we're sometimes not honest is because we don't really believe in the grace and kindness of God. I mean, if we really believed, think about this, if we really believed that God accepts us entirely by his grace, not because we are good at keeping up appearances, not because we have it together, not because we've cleaned up our story. If we just believed God accepts us totally by grace, we'd feel more freedom to just be honest, wouldn't we? 
Listen, two things are always true at the same time. And our culture tries to separate them, but I want you to see they're both true at the same time. Number one, you are an individual person with agency. You are responsible for your life, your decisions, your sin, your weaknesses. You have personal responsibility and personal agency. And at the same time, you are the product of a family and you are shaped by a story. Somehow our culture sort of wants to say either you're individually responsible or you're, you're shaped by your circumstances. The Bible says always both are true. Both are always true. And because you're a part of a bigger story, listen, there are probably generational patterns in your family because there always are. I mean, that's what we see in this story. I don't know if you caught it, but if you know anything about the book of Genesis, here's what you know. The favoritism that we see in this story, it's not new. It's been in the family for generations. In fact, Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. Some of the reason there's tension between Esau and Jacob is because Esau was daddy's favorite and Jacob was mommy's favorite. This has been going on for generations. This sense among the brothers that they could not speak peace to one another, that they sort of cut off relationship, <laughs> that too runs in the family. Jacob, prior to this story, hadn't spoken to his own brother Esau for almost two decades. These are not new patterns. These are connected to the dynamic that's been here for generations. There are generational patterns playing out here. And so what I want you to realize is you are an individual human being with agency. You can't blame your own sin on what happened to you. You have to take responsibility for your own life. And at the same time, you are shaped by a story. Some of the things that you struggle with, that you battle with, that you're perplexed by are present in your story because they've come down through the story, through the family you grew up in. So here's some questions for you. Do you know? what the generational patterns are in your family? What were the unwritten rules and expectations that we all knew but nobody really talked about? What do we talk about in our family and what don't we talk about? Which things are off limits? We just don't mention that. How have those patterns shaped who you are today? These are really, really important questions for us to ask. And listen, we call this here at Cormdale, I don't think this language is particular to us, but we, we talk about doing story work. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about just getting real, getting honest about the things that have shaped you, the story that you're living in, what's happened in your life, good and bad. And if you're not willing to do that story work, there's a level of spiritual and relational maturity that you're just never going to be able to reach because maturity, wisdom, growth, self-awareness, comes through this kind of honesty. You can't get to a place of real health and maturity unless you do this kind of work. And the good news, friends, what this text is telling you is, listen, God's grace is bigger than your story. So you're free to be honest. It's okay to do this work. It's okay to explore these questions. It's okay to have these conversations. God's grace is bigger than your story. So you're free to be honest about your story. And one of the things I hope the Lord opens up through the story of Joseph 
is just a deeper honesty among us where we can talk about the real things going on in our lives or that have happened to us in life until this point and allow people to enter in and help us see the grace of God in the midst of those things. Because God's grace is bigger than your story, you're free to be honest about your story. Here's the second point of application. Because God's grace is bigger than your story, you can be part of a new story. You can be part of a new story. This is the good news. It's not just, hey, you can be honest about the story that's shaped you to this point. The good news is you can be part of a new story. Let me show you where the Joseph story is headed. I'm going to do the thing I told you not to do back when I was telling you about how to read a good story where you don't have to wait and let the story develop. Now we're going to skip to the end and I'm going to show you where it's headed, okay? Um, So let's jump to the last chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. One of the most important verses in the whole book. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. This is the perspective Joseph has at the end of the story. You meant it for evil. Yeah, you were trying to hurt me. You were out for my demise. You did not mean to bring about good effects in my life, but despite all of that, God meant it for good. God was doing something bigger. Friends, think about this. We serve a God who can take the actions of people meant to harm you and turn those things into redemptive good. That's powerful. That's beautiful. And this theme in Joseph's story points us ahead to a greater Joseph that is yet to come. There was another innocent man who was sold for a few pieces of silver, who was delivered into the hands of his enemies, who was cast down into the pit, and who rose to a position of power to deliver his people. The Jewish and Roman officials who nailed Jesus Christ to the cross meant it for evil. They weren't trying to save your soul. They were trying to get rid of a person they thought was a nuisance. In fact, it's the greatest crime, the greatest injustice in the history of the world. The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest inversion of justice that's ever taken place. An innocent man was publicly put to death in a humiliating way. And yet God used that evil to bring about the redemption of the world. God was doing the greatest good through what looked like the greatest evil and through what on the part of the human actors in the story was evil. There was malice in their hearts. Because of God's grace through Joseph and because of God's grace through Jesus, friends, God's grace can come to you and you can be part of a new story. And the story of Joseph shows you how. It actually shows the contours of what this looks like. If you pay attention, you'll notice that the character of Joseph dies and is reborn. Not physically, but in the story. Think about this. His identity is erased. The garment that identifies him and marks him as distinct is torn and destroyed. 
His father mourns for him as though dead. His place in the family is removed. There's just a blank spot where there used to be Joseph. He is no more. And then he rises again as part of a new story. No longer as the 17-year-old kid, but as a wise and powerful leader and ruler who is brought up from the pit by God's grace for God's purposes. Friends, you can be part of this new story in the same way. First, you've got to go through a sort of death. You've got to die to the person you have been, to the life you have lived, to the identity you have had. The scriptures talk of being crucified with Christ. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about leaving behind the old you, your old life, your former identity, letting Jesus take all of that into the grave with him and being raised then to a new kind of life, a new identity, a new name, a new story, a new purpose. The scriptures speak of this as being born again because that's what it is. It's a dying and a resurrection. That's the opportunity that God's grace makes available to you and to every human being who wishes to get in on it. Because God's grace is bigger than your story, you can be part of a new story, friends. You can die to the person you have been and be born again through faith in Jesus. Third, because God's grace is bigger than your story, you're free to put off the old and put on the new. You're free to be honest about your story. You're free to enter into a new story. And you're free to put off the old and put on the new. Listen, there's a myth that Christians like to believe. And it goes like this. I'm born again, so everything has changed. There's an important way in which that is true. And there's also a way in which it is not true. It does not mean magically all my struggles are gone. It does not mean I'm no longer shaped by the story I've lived to this point. It does not mean all the old habits and patterns and practices that used to define me are no more. The story of Joseph helps to destroy that myth and replace it with a right and proper biblical one. Listen, Joseph's life does not change in an instant. His character does not change overnight. In fact, one of the things you're going to see in this story is that Joseph's character is reformed over years. Years that include suffering, hardship, loneliness, isolation, betrayal, false accusations, and also success. All of this gets filtered into his story in a way that makes him a different kind of person. It takes years for him to unlearn the disordered habits of his family of origin and learn to live in a new story and be defined by a new reality. And it's funny that in this story, as you will see, when finally he's reunited with his brothers years after this, they don't even recognize him. He's different. He's changed. But that's happened over years. And listen, the same is true for you. One author cleverly says it this way. Jesus may live in your heart, 
but grandpa lives in your bones. Like the fact that Jesus lives in your heart does not erase all the things that filter into your story because grandpa lives in your bones. You don't magically change overnight. But because God's grace is bigger than your story, you're free to put off the old and to put on the new. And listen, this means too, for those of you that are like trying to live into a new story, this applies as well, right? You're free to put off the old and put on the new. The next generation of your family's existence or of your own life doesn't have to look like the last generation did. Why? Because God's grace sets you free to put off the old and put on the new. The point is, it doesn't happen by magic. It takes diligence and thoughtfulness and prayer and community and insight and effort and the Spirit of God. Becoming a different kind of person requires putting off and putting on. That's the language the book of Colossians uses. Put off and put on. Notice that's active language. There's things, there's habits and patterns and dispositions from your past life and from your story and from your family of origin that you're going to have to put off and put to death. And it's going to take work. There's new habits and dispositions and inclinations that you're going to need to put on the same way you put on your clothes in the morning. You're going to need to clothe yourself with virtue and goodness and honesty and beauty and the kinds of character qualities the New Testament talks about. Put off, put on. This is how we grow. And listen, you're free to do that because God's grace is bigger than your story. What I want you to embrace and if this is all you get this morning, then great, is that your story doesn't change by magic. It changes by grace. And God's grace is good news, but it's also news that has implications for you. It means you got to go out of here and actually do some work, attend to some things. And it's the grace of God that makes your doing of that possible. You're going to see, I mean, I don't want to give away all the chapters to come, but you're going to see Jacob's family learn some hard lessons and be transformed through some experiences that they have and through how God uses those experiences to refine them and shape them and grow them. By God's grace, friends, you can put off the old and put on the new because God's grace is bigger than your story. So here's the question. What do you need to put off? What do you need to put on? Maybe that's a question for you as an individual human being. Maybe there are things from your family of origin you need to put off and new things you need to put on. Maybe that's a question for you as a father or a mother or an uncle or an aunt. What do you need to put off? What do you need to sow into a new dynamic within your family? I hope it's a question for our whole church. What things about evangelical Christianity in America do we need to put off because our family is dysfunctional? And what new things do we need to put on that look more beautiful? What do you need to put off? What do you need to put off? Listen, I said a few minutes ago that I want you to walk out of here believing that God's grace is bigger than your story. I just want God to give you the grace to believe that his grace is bigger than your story, that you are not defined by your story, and that you're called into his story. And I think there are two temptations that keep us from that. 
two reasons why you would walk out of here not believing that. The first is the temptation that each of us has and that our culture presses upon us to rise above our story. This is the self-help temptation, right? Hey, you know what? I know I've got a story. I know I've been shaped by some things. Maybe some bad things have happened to me in life. Maybe there's some dysfunction in my family. But you know what? All that's in the past. I'm going to rise above it. I'm going to move beyond it. It's a new day. I got a new kind of effort. I got a new maturity. I'm not living for that anymore. I'm living in a new story. I'm going to rise above that story. That's one temptation. The other temptation sounds like this. I'm nothing but my story. There's no hope for me to be different. There's no hope for me to change. There's no hope that life can look different because I'm nothing but my story. This is the, this is the lot that I've been handed and it's not a great one and that's all that's true about me. Do you notice how our culture wants you to live in one of those two realities? Either be the person who rises above your story or you know what, you're nothing but your story. And guess what neither of those requires? The grace of God. You don't need Jesus to rise above your story. You don't need Jesus to believe you're nothing but your story. Those are just different ways of self-effort. One that believes you can rise above your story and one that believes you can't. Friends, the grace of God calls you to something completely different. It calls you to acknowledge the reality of your story and then to be changed by his grace in the midst of your story. God's grace transforms your story. That's what we see in Joseph. And I know there's 13 chapters to come and I can't preach the whole book right now. But what you're going to see as we go through this story is the beautiful way that the grace of God meets these broken people in their places of brokenness. Sometimes it's things that have been done to them. Sometimes it's their own sin and wickedness. God meets them in the midst of all that and changes them and works out his purposes in the midst of their story. God's grace is bigger than their story, friends, and God's grace is bigger than your story. So let's just ask him for the grace and the hope to believe that together. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for giving us a scripture full of real people who are a lot like us. Thanks that we get to see their brokenness, their weakness, their dysfunction, and their sin. And thanks for the reminder that we are no different from them. So we thank you that the hero of this story is not Jacob, and it's not Joseph, and it's not the brothers. It's you and what you are doing by your grace to redeem a people for yourself. God, would you this morning meet us in the midst of our stories? In all the beauty and all the brokenness, would you come and manifest your grace? Help us be caught up in a new story. Give us the grace to put off the old and put on the new and set out in a new direction, hoping not in our own ability to change, but hoping in the fact that your grace is a gift and changes us and gives us a power we didn't have. So meet us even this morning as we sing, as we come to your table. Meet us by your grace and change us and shape us more fully into the people you want us to be. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.